Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling. With me as always is Brandon Odo. Hello. And we have a special guest with us today. Dr. Nicole King is a critical care anesthesiologist at the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, But also, she spent the summer working in the COVID ground zero of New York City. So we're going to talk to her today about managing patients with COVID-19 infections uh, and kind of tie into her expertise from seeing where it was really going down. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. All right, Nicole. So it is, in fact, uh, in full peak swing of the pandemic, and you are covering your COVID ICU when you get a call from the emergency department. And they're telling you that they have a a 62-year-old male there. Um, He has a history of some hypertension, diabetes, uh, obesity. His BMI is about 40. Um, And he's had about about two days of a cough. And then for the past day or so, he's had some fevers and chills and just has been feeling unwell. Um, He went to see his PCP, and they they actually did a, a COVID swab in the office there, but it's still pending at the moment. Um, he does say uh, he saw some extended family seven, eight days ago, uh, some of whom eventually tested positive for COVID. So, you know, he comes in because he's worried. Uh, he comes to the ED there. And uh, they, of course, are suspicious for COVID. And um, they talk to the hospitalist for possibly admitting him to the floor there. Uh, but they also call the ICU to evaluate because they're not sure the best disposition. Um, when you take a look at him, you see that he's, he's awake. He is a little tachypnic and maybe mildly distressed in his breathing. Um, you auscultate his chest, and he has just some faint crackles diffusely. But he's wearing a non-rebreather mask, and on that, he's satting about 91%. His heart rate's 105. His pressure's about 120 over 70. Um, they have an x-ray of his chest, which just shows some pretty unimpressive, diffusely increased markings bilaterally. Um, his white count's 13, his hemoglobin's 11, platelets are about 110. I can give you any other labs that you care to obtain. Um, but just on your kind of first impression of a patient like this, obviously you're going to have some suspicions for COVID. But of course, other diseases do exist. Um, well, I guess my first question is, right now, if you swab somebody for COVID, how long is it taking you to get that result back? Right now, um, about 24 to 36 hours because we don't have rapid tests anymore. Okay. Because we're out. So assuming that you test somebody when they show up like this, um, what else, kind of what further are you doing to rule out other diagnoses in a patient with a presentation like this? I mean, mo- almost all of them are getting swabbed like, for your your viral panel just because the flu, a rhinovirus, adenovirus, and other such things are going around. Um, and then, you know, your typical COPD exacerbations, CHF exacerbations, and just basic bacterial pneumonias or viral pneumonias. So, I mean, all of that stuff is still being considered. So kind of typical infectious workups, but particularly like viral, uh, you know, pneumonitis, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, what other labs are you looking for in people like this? Maybe especially to help with your diagnosis while you wait for your swab, um, or is there anything? You know, it's a little hard because I'm so biased towards my patients are usually half dead by the time they get to me. 
Um, but with these patients, I do think it's super important to get your standard inflammatory markers, your CRP, your ESR, and your D-dimer, and your ferritin, mainly because to me, it tracks and it trends so significantly with A, whether it's COVID or not, and B, where they are at and their kind of trajectory of the disease process, if it is COVID. Okay. So we'll probably circle back on those, but let's say his, uh, his fibrinogen is about 500, his D-dimer is around 2,000, uh, his CRP is about 94, his ferritin's 4,000. Um, are you, I mean, are you doing anything with those numbers right now, or it's more to look at later? Just trending. Okay. Uh, a patient like this, what do you think? Would you put him in the ICU or elsewhere? Um, again, I'm going to be biased because most of my patients are already intubated and being considered for ECMO, but I would say no, not with this disease and not with limited beds that we have. No, he'd have to go to the floor for right now. Okay. Now the floor team says, all right, um, we know it's busy. When should we call you back? What what would be a marker that this guy does need to come to you? Uh, tachypnea and anxiousness, signs of impending ventilatory, ventilatory failure, not hypoxic failure. Okay. So you'd want to see that he's clinically has more work of breathing or he has a rising CO2? Right. Correct. What about hypoxia-wise? If he can mentate and talk and continue to function at a similar level that he came in, even if he's profoundly hypoxic, I would say avoid intubation as for as long as possible. So you, you would subscribe to the camp, at least in the current state of the art, that says that some of these patients are going to be even profoundly hypoxic, at least by numbers, but that either either doesn't mean something or at, at least even then they're better off not being on the vent. Yes. What would you suggest as a auctionation strategy in the meantime? He's on a non-rebreather right now. Would you do something else? I mean, it depends what they have. If they have something like OptiFlow or Vapotherm or some people just call it high-flow nasal cannula um, to kind of increase the liters per minute, the, that positive pressure ventilation. BiPAP, BiPAP, depending where you are, is going to buy you an ICU bed. It just depends on the comfort level of the hospital and the team that you're working with. Uh, I think utilizing those is while also encouraging self-proning on the floor will prevent a lot of intubations. So the, the majority of you know borderline patients like this, you would try to get the patient to prone themselves? Yes. What's been your experience with that? I think we found that often patients don't seem to tolerate it. They don't like it. And it's very labor intensive for the staff. And I think that's the hardest part um, because obviously we all know the hospitals are full and our nurse patient ratios or physician patient ratios are not what they quote unquote should be or usually are. Um, I think proning is extremely uncomfortable. Um, and I know this not from personal experience, but my husband's aunt was just in the hospital for four and a half weeks, self-proning on BiPAP to avoid intubation. And I really do feel like it's the only reason she's still alive because of her body habitus and asthma. I'm afraid that with a tube, I'm not sure what the end result would have been. Um, 
So I do think that it can work. I do know it's very uncomfortable and it's very labor intensive, so it may not be sustainable long-term depending on patient load. What about anticoagulation? What's your approach right now? Um, We actually just created a pathway based on kind of many of the hospitals on the East and West Coast, uh, including the hospital where I was at when I was in New York at New York Presbyterian, Columbia, where you kind of strategically look at each patient and decide if they're low risk, medium risk, or high risk based on multiple comorbidities that they come in with and or lab values or significant clinical findings to determine if you're going to put them in standard uh, anticoagulation, kind of a moderate anticoagulation and or full anticoagulation. And I think it's that moderate category that um, is the weird new thing that we're doing with COVID. Um, And I definitely believe in it and agree with it. and I feel as though more aggressive anticoagulation early may help us to prevent the progression to some of the dead space ventilation disease we see with this because of microthrombi. Um, so that's kind of what we are doing. And it's what we actually were doing up in New York, even as early as early April, even though we didn't have any data at the time. I, I think we're doing similar. Is your your intermediate is like um, noxaparin, like 30 BID, something like that? 0.5 mix per kg BID. Okay, kind. yeah. Whereas your full dose would be like like one per kilo or are you doing heparin drips or you're trying to do low molecular weight? Well, I mean, I think mo- on the wards, I think they they stick with the Lobinox as much as possible. For me, it's a little different because like I said, the vast majority of my patients are either on or going on ECMO, so it's different. Um, but we tend to do more heparin drips, but now our patients, once they're off ECMO and we're kind of teeing them up for discharge to rehab, we are utilizing Lobinox. All right. Um, where are you at as far as disease specific agents otherwise? I mean, we're using remdesivir, Decadron, though most patients, once they get to me, have already done the standard recovery trials, steroids. So now we're then doing the DEXA ARDS um, dosing of steroids once they get to us, because most of them have full-blown ARDS. Most patients have already received convalescent plasma. If they haven't, we'll consider it. But considering most of our patients are already intubated, there's really not a whole lot of benefit. Um, So really it's remdesivir and... Uh, steroids. And that's kind of it. So for the steroids, you, you're giving everyone kind of their, their course of Decadron for COVID. And then if they're sick enough, you're kind of treating them as if you were treating an ARDS patient with steroids. Correct. Okay. All right. Um, so the patient does go to the floor. Um, and then the next day you get a call from the hospitalist team saying, you know, he's, um, he's more tachypnic now. He's breathing in the, the 45s or so. Now he's sitting in the, the low to mid 80s. Um, he's, uh, his ABG is about 7.3 and his PCO2 is uh, 45.50 around there. His PO2 is 55-ish. Um, now what is... Is there anything further you would do? You would just keep maybe keep watching him or is this to you a sign that he's starting to fail? I mean, he may be starting to fail. 
But at the same time, I think I look at these patients very differently now, knowing that it's, it can't just be about this individual patient. It really has to be about resource utilization. And can this patient survive another day or two doing what they're doing versus another patient who doesn't have the strength or has more comorbidities that is going to need that ventilator before them? And if I can push him through that almost getting intubated phase and get him through to the other side, would I potentially be able to, you know, pull him out of that and not be able, not have to get intubated? So I think I just look at it very differently. I think most of us are very used to going into a rescue mode. And I think with this disease, you have to be very careful about that. Because rescue mode doesn't mean the same thing. Because once these patients are intubated, you know you're in for a long haul and kind of a, a spiral that may not end well. Whereas you also have to decide well, who's going to get that ventilator and who's not. Now, I'm not saying we're technically, you know, um, determining who needs ventilators and who doesn't. But you can't just be like, we can put everyone on a ventilator. So I think you really have to think long and hard about it versus your standard you know, flu season. How, how willing are you to use CPAP or BiPAP in this sort of patient? Oh, all the time. I think at the beginning, we were all weird about it because we thought of the aerosolizing generating um, <clears throat> process of it. And it is right. We know that, but if you're in an, if you can put them in a negative pressure room and you're in your people have appropriate PPE, I think positive pressure ventilation is the way to go. I mean, I guess in the past with patients like this, with essentially ARDS, my main concern would be that it, it's somewhat bad form to have somebody on CPAP for like a week. Um, and now I guess I'm not sure because we're also trying to avoid innovating these people. But I mean, are, are you okay with these really prolonged courses if someone's stuck on non-invasive ventilation like that? Or if so, I mean, it, do you have an a, approach to making it more tolerable? Are you trying to cycle people on and off or... I think a lot of times we and people are cycling them. And again, this is just like the few patients who come in and or, you know, either before intubation, after, or just personal experience with family members, but cycling them on and off using your OptiFlow for comfort and then BiPAP if um, at, always at night, anytime that they're in a sitting or uh, supine position, especially I think they need the BiPAP in order to... <clears throat> you know, decrease that, uh, the amount of dead space ventilation. I don't have a problem with the length of time that they're on positive pressure ventilation. I do have concerns about the fact that the, these patients' respiratory drives are so high and they take giant tidal volumes. And so they give themselves barotrauma a lot. We see a lot of pneumomediastinum, a lot of pneumothoraces. And most of the time it's patients who have been self-proning and on BiPAP. And they're so air hungry that they take these one liter, 1500 milliliter tidal volumes, which we would never give them on the vent. And it does cause trauma. And this is, these are people who are on non-invasive ventilation. They've been developing spontaneous pneumos. Yes. And there's no, I mean, I guess suppose you could dial down their levels of support to where they're minimal, but it's so much of it is just from their spontaneous drive that at some point they're not getting anything. <laughs> yes, exactly. And honestly, even I've had patients who on the vent, 
Uh, I had a patient a few weeks ago and I was giving him like five over five on a ventilator and his tidal volumes were like 1200. I mean, they just have this drive that I still don't think we understand what is driving this air hunger. And um, it's incredible. Uh, and I think that it, it really does lend itself to some self-injurious uh, problems with their breathing, especially when they're on BiPAP, even though I think BiPAP can be life-saving. I also think it can cause these complications that we don't really see normally as much anymore. What are you doing for nutrition in these people who are on long courses of non-invasive? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I think that that's, that's a super concerning thing. And I would say you should probably just buy You should put a feeding tube in because they need their nutrition their metabolic rates through the roof. Um, you know, I think we all have different theories and there's no good proof on should you feed the stomach versus should you feed the duodenum, especially if you're on positive pressure ventilation. I think in the past, I would have been abhorred to do positive pressure, pressure ventilation on somebody I was actively feeding their stomach. But I feel like COVID has created this weird alternate universe where we do all the things we're never thought we would do. Um, and now I'm like, well, if they're tolerating it and they're having bowel movements and they're not actively aspirating, then feed them. Um, but eating is probably not going to happen with these patients because just breathing is so hard for them to do. Uh, but I do think we should feed them. Yeah. I'm just imagining like going to elaborate lengths to try to get a post pyloric tube in this patient who can't be off the mask for more than like two minutes. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. I think you just have, it's kind of like in New York, like you, everybody just got fed through an NG tube into their stomach and it either worked or it didn't. And if it didn't, you just sucked it out and kept going and thought, right. well, we'll try again tomorrow. All right. So this particular patient, um, he manages to squeak by for another day or two and he's about at day three in the hospital. Uh, and when you come in, you find that he's in the unit because he did require intubation for severe respiratory distress. Um, he was getting more altered. He was sitting down to the sixties. Um, and after intubation, which was only maybe an hour before you arrived, he was uh, placed right on a, a PEEP of 10, and he's on 100% oxygen. What is your general approach for setting up the vent on these patients? This is complicated because I feel as though we all want to go straight to like ARDSnet protocol and decrease those tidal volumes and make sure that the, you know, the plateau pressures are less than 30 um, a lot of people really focus on the delta of 14. So how much pressure are you giving them versus PEEP and what's the difference? I think that that's very difficult with COVID, depending at what point in time in the disease process you're intubating, intubating them. I think early in the process, if you set like a nice standard, you know, inspiratory pressure of 26, 28, you'll probably get a decent tidal volume and be able to oxygenate and ventilate well enough. But as you move later in the course of COVID and it turns into full-blown ARDS, which almost all of them do once they get to me, then I think it's much more difficult to ventilate them with ARDSnet protocol protective ventilatory strategies. I would go to pressure control for sure um, and do what I can to keep the pressure less than 30, knowing that that is not always possible, um, especially in that this is a disease process of dead space ventilation because of microthrombi. 
And if you have tiny tidal volumes in order to keep your pressures low, you're not going to ventilate, nor are you going to oxygenate because you're not moving any air down into the alveoli. So I think you try ArsNet protocol uh, vent settings, and then you see what happens. Why pressure control? Um, mainly because I feel like anytime you give a lot of these patients, you, you could do volume control as long as their pressure, you know, as long as their plateaus are less than 30, do volume control. Either way, it doesn't matter to me. I think everybody has their preferences. I have been in various hospitals that use different things. I will say that this is this. I have never been a pressure support slash CPAP type of person um, with mechanical ventilation for long periods of time because I feel like at least atelectasis and more hypoxia. But with this disease process, because of the trouble you have with sedation, sometimes I feel like you just have to let them do their thing and give them the support that they need. Um, so really for vent settings, you figure out what works best for that patient and each person will be different. Yeah, I think the um, it's been challenging for me because I, I normally try to you know get patients as synchronous with the ventilator as possible. And as you said, a lot of these patients have so much air hunger that they'll often end up with a lot of flow dyssynchrony. They'll be kind of sucking at the ventilator, especially in volume control with a fixed flow. So it makes sense to go to pressure control or even pressure support, even just for comfort. But then when you do, they end up taking tidal volumes of like a liter, as you said. And then you can come down and down on the amount of support, um, but you end up where you're giving them almost none. And then I don't know where to go with it. Do you allow them to set their own breath and take a much larger one? Or do you try to you know, curtail it with something like volume control and then presumably they're kind of angry about it? Um, exactly. And I think it's super hard. I think for the longest time when I was first up in New York, we were trying to control it. And I think we all finally just said, forget it, especially because we were using anesthesia machines because I was in an ORICU and it would just, those events were so terrible compared to ICU ventilators that we would just say, well, we're just going to have to let them pressure support and do what they want. And it's terrible and I don't want to see it. And I don't want to watch it. I don't want to see those tidal volumes, but at the same time, uh, what are you going to do? Because then the flip side of this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it is, what do you, are you just going to sedate them and paralyze them forever and ever so that you can control their ventilation? Because God knows we're all seeing the side effects of that. Right. So it's, you kind of have, I, this is how I kind of talk to the residents and the nurse practitioners every day when we're rounding is what is the least risky thing we can do for this patient today? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, but today, because we just have to get this patient through today. So do we try to wake them up a little bit so that we can get a neuro exam knowing that their respiratory rate and their tidal volumes are going to look terrible and we're going to hate looking at them? Or do we think that they need to rest today and we go another day without a neuro exam? And every day you ask the same questions. Yeah. And, you know, you could argue this is just how they're going to be and you should let them be that way. But as you said, I mean, even we are some seeing, seeing some as barotrauma and things like that as, as well. It's like, you know, they used to say in the early days of ARDS, patients had, you know, six chest tubes and it was kind of normal to have, you know, lungs popping left and right. So I, I don't know. And I, I do feel like early when we were innovating a lot more people, everybody was ending up heavily sedated and perhaps paralyzed. And I mean, they 
tended to have really dismal outcomes. And now, you know, more and more of them were able to keep off the event. They're doing better. And then even some of the ones on the event, I feel like if we can keep them in more of that, you know, really the same way I like to see most of the patients being awake and comfortable and kind of as minimally medicalized as possible. I think they are doing better, but there there's still this maybe dwindling, but there's still this core of patients who end up in that that milieu of being heavily sedated, paralyzed, you know, going nuts on the ventilator and they're still doing poorly. And I don't know if it's because that's just a marker for the worst disease or if it's because they get all this iatrogenesis from that. And if so, I still don't know how to avoid it. I mean, we can try, but there's still some patients who just end up there. And they are, and they, that's all I see, you know? And so it's hard for me because I feel like I saw this kind of in state in every patient I saw in New York, but that's because that was early in the pandemic. We were intubating everyone, you know? So I just kind of thought, oh, well, this is because we're just trying to figure out how to take care of this disease. But sometimes it's really hard for me because every patient I see is like this. The sedation medications that we are on is just out of the movie. We are paralyzed over half the time. And this is just to be synchronous on event that really isn't doing much. They're all on ECMO. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, every day it's like, what, have we made any progress on this with this disease? And I'm thinking, I'm sure that we have, I just can't see it because I only see the sickest of the sick. But sometimes it is really hard because I'm like, I feel like the patients have the same um, horrific outcomes that I saw in New York and it's December, you know? What, um, how are you setting your PEEP? I mean, I think the nice thing is we have great RTs who kind of will help us set best PEEP um, with our, you know, our inspiratory flow monitors on our ventilator. And we find what's best for the patient that also does not impair their hemodynamics because it's also really important to us. Because our problem is if we set PEEP too high, we end up not filling our cannulas. And so then they low flow and then they get hypoxic. So it's kind of a different animal. Um, but I would say that the PEEP, the interesting thing about PEEP, even going back to all my patients in New York, is that early in the disease, you don't need that much PEEP. Later in the disease, you do because the lungs get stiff. Um, and I think it just kind of depends where you are on that, the trajectory of the disease process. Yeah. I think what, um, yeah, I, I, I'm someone who tr- does generally try to find kind of the quote unquote best peep for most people. And I think what I found a lot of these people is that, as you said, some of them are really readily recruitable and they don't need much. Some of them, uh, are more poorly compliant and they maybe need more peep, but they often are not very recruitable anyway. So a lot of these patients don't seem to get a whole lot out of the peep and yet what they're getting, they need because they're yes, so borderline. And if borderline. it goes away, it's like the, it's like the end of times, right? Yeah. Cause they're already so borderline on their oxygenation. I mean, it's not like they're profoundly recruitable, but the margin is giving them the, it's not like optional. <laughs> Absolutely. And it is profound how quickly they can, they can tank if they lose that little bit of peep that is stenting over open that one last alveoli. Yeah. Yeah. It's which, you know, it's maybe one of the many reasons why this, we kind of, uh, frustrating patients because you don't feel like you're giving them any like silver bullets here. It's just a lot of 
No, <laughs> it's like time or... and love and effort, and then still half the time, it, you know, you you can't win because this yeah. disease is awful. And so, yes, it's so hard. Are you making use of um, APRV or inverse ratio ventilation on your pressure control? You know, we do some inverse uh, ratio ventilation, especially obviously with our paralyzed patients. They don't do a lot of APRV here. It's interesting. I think APRV is very facility and institution dependent. Um, I used it a lot at Vanderbilt. I did. We talked about it in New York, though we didn't use it a whole lot, though all of us kind of thought it may be the optimal ventilation strategy for them. So you could let them breathe on their own and kind of utilize their own PEEP to um, make themselves comfortable and let them breathe 50 times a minute if they want to. Um, at the institution I'm at right now, they are they don't do a lot of APRV in the cardiac unit, though they do in the MICU, and I think they are utilizing it in the MICU quite a bit. I am a huge fan. I would love to use it more, but um, you know, it's kind of just facility dependent. Yeah, it's definitely cultural. And you definitely have to hit that that branch point where you decide if you're going to paralyze them or try to get them to stop breathing or sort of encourage it and maybe go the APRV direction. Because if you're on APRV and they're hardly breathing, you're, um, the ventilation becomes really difficult, I think. And I think that's the hard part. Sometimes what we see in other hospitals when before they transition or transfer the patients is they tr- they're trying all these things and they'll end up on APRV paralyzed. And it's just, it doesn't work, you know, it just, it, it works against you, I think, in the, that situation um, and doesn't gain you anything. But it, it, I mean, I understand what they're trying to do. I just think it's scary to watch somebody on APRV not paralyzed because you think that, you know, they're uncomfortable or, uh, the, but really, I think it's the best way to go. I would love to do it more, but I haven't really had the opportunity. Now, what's been your approach to proning, especially after intubation? I mean, we prone when we need to, if the PDF ratio is less than, you know, a hundred for a prolonged amount of time, we will prone. I will say most people come to us either already prone or have been prone because then we're bringing them here for potential cannulation. Um, I had a patient who was prone all last night. Um, I think proning is fantastic. Do, do I think it works for everyone? No, I do not. Um, I especially don't think it works as well later in the disease course, just like we were talking about when those lungs are super fibrotic. I think it's more beneficial earlier in the disease course when you still have compliance and ability to recruit those posterior segments of your lungs. I think um, so early in the disease process, even while intubated, I think it's, it's key for sure. Are you still proning if they're on ECMO? No, we do not. Though a lot of, I know in France and the big French study that came out, um, I think in August, they proned a lot, but their patients were also a lot smaller than our patients. So you would subscribe more to the view that proning is a, a oxygenation strategy more than a lung protective one. I mean, you can still be lung protective, I think, with it, but I think I we utilize it more as a, you know a last ditch. Let's see if we can oxygenate a little bit better. I don't usually think it helps a whole lot with ventilation. Um, and it definitely does not help in terms of hemodynamics a lot of times. So um, that's been the biggest problem is can patients tolerate it from a hemodynamic standpoint? But I do think it usually will help with hypoxia. Yeah, I, I think we, we've been doing similarly. Like we're using it when you can't oxygenate them and then we're flipping them and seeing how they, they do. And if they respond, then we're continuing it. I just, I'm never sure if that's the right 
the right thing because maybe it's more just something that has a longer term benefit as far as kind of normalizing their compliance and lung protectiveness. And in that case, I don't know if there's a marker to look at to see if it's working. Maybe we should just be doing it regardless. Um, but as you say, it's not benign. I mean, it can be challenging to do. It's so challenging, especially, I mean, I don't, I don't know where you work, but I can tell you that like none of us are taking care of BMI of 25, right? And so when, and that's nothing against our patients. It's just, it's just the facts. It's like when you are proning a patient whose BMI is 40 to 60 and you have all these lines and stuff, it is a dangerous endeavor for, you know, everyone, but most importantly, the patient. And it's, it's just so labor intensive. And I think what we had in New York was a proning team, but that's because everybody in the hospital was taking care of COVID. I think the problem right now is when we're trying to do both standard care and COVID COVID care is just your teams that you have available are proning these patients. And it's just a lot of time. When are you turning to ECMO? (laughs) I mean, we all, we have standard ECMO criteria. Um, It varies, but I would say, and right now, you know, I think certain regions actually establish COVID criteria, or I mean, ECMO criteria, and certain regions are trying to determine if they should have COVID ECMO criteria. Um, And, you know, ELSO has put out recommendations on their, you know, what they think is reasonable to cannulate. But the problem with ELSO is that they get a lot of their data from Europe and their patient population is very different. They think they have listed as a relative contraindication of a BMI over 40, and we haven't cannulated anyone with a BMI under 40, (laughs) you know? So there's no way that we can have the same exclusion criteria. Um, I do think we're getting a little bit more stringent, you know, in terms of age, comorbidities, um, length of time on ventilation. I mean, that's the biggest thing is how long have they been ventilated? Is there a way for the, their lungs to recover? Um, so a prolonged course you would consider a kind of soft contraindication? It, it's, um, it's actually our most stringent contraindication is if you have been intubated right now for longer than 10 to 14 days and on high vent settings for longer than seven days, we will not cannulate. Because you think they will not recover. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, are you generally doing VA? No, we do VV for most of these. Okay. And you find that that gets along okay with their hemodynamics? Yeah, because most of them, a lot of their hemodynamics is hypoxia and hyper capnia driven, and they do tend to get better, at least initially when we cannulate. Very rarely, I actually, we had one person who was cannulating for VA that came over last night, um, and she's COVID positive, but that is, uh, that is a rarity for our COVIDs. We're not seeing that a whole lot. And, and that may be due to when you're cannulating too. If you, if you wait very late until they're also having like cardiovascular collapse, then they may need more VA, but then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Right. And so that's a whole other can of worms is, okay, do you, what about when these patients start throwing all their PEs and they go into RV failure? Because that's how all my patients died in New York. And it's, you know, you were hoping that you're kind of preventing that by being more aggressive with anticoagulation. 
But my question is always, what do I do with these patients who are on VV and then they start throwing those PEs? And then what if the RV starts struggling? Like, then what are we going to do? Are we going to convert to VA? I mean, we haven't done that, but it is something I think about. Yeah. Now what's, I mean, I I know that the data is still really slim, but in general, what's been your impression uh, on the outcomes of these patients? Because I'll tell you, our our local ECMO center has really started to try to to avoid putting these people on the pump because they've just found in general, the outcomes are poor. Not so much for respiratory reasons, but just for, for complications. They're just having, they're just having medical complications and not doing well. And we do, I mean, we have medical complications, but we also have had pretty good results. I mean, I think our our results are consistent with so many other institutions across the country that are still actively doing ECMO for COVID. And the data is actually pretty reassuring. It's much better than the China data that came out initially. Um, And even better than the most recent, you know, ELSO average data. I mean, our survival rate's pretty high. Um, And considering that these patients are astronomically ill when they come in and are ill with us for three to six weeks. The fact that we still have a very robust survival rate, I think speaks to, you know, obviously the dedication of the team, but I think that's why we keep cannulating is because yes, there are a lot of losses, but there's a lot of losses not on ECMO too. I mean, the mortality rate of our patients who get intubated and go to the ICU is still, I think, nationally, somewhere in the 20 to 30% rate, uh, that really hasn't decreased that much since New York when it was 40%. So the mortality rate is just high, regardless of whether you're on ECMO or not. I, so maybe if there's a, a secret to doing it right from your perspective, it might be put them on relatively early, try to do VV as perhaps a less morbid approach. Um, so, I mean, doing it early means you need to have some approach to figuring out who is the best candidate other than just waiting them get two weeks in and then using it as a rescue. So, I mean, is it kind of a gestalt thing? You know, these patients seems like they're headed towards that point of being refractory. Yes. Gestalt thing. And is this person like in their mid fifties, other otherwise relatively healthy, no really end organ damage that seems like it's irreversible. Um, somebody who doesn't have, you know, metastatic cancer everywhere, and, you know, has a longer than one year life expectancy, you start just kind of like gathering these factors and you're thinking, okay, these kind of, this patient seems like they would be a good candidate. We're like three to four days into intubation or into mechanical ventilation. We're not getting any better. We're actually plateauing or getting worse with our vent settings. Nothing's really working throw the kitchen sink at them, do all the things, you know, do all your vent strategies, paralyze them, prone them, do inhaled prostaglandins or nitric. If none of that works, you call your ECMO center and just ask. And then is there a point, are you letting them stay on the pump until something bad happens or until they're able to wean, or are you calling it quits at some point? We don't call it quits because that it has to go through like a regional um, like an ethics committee approval. Yes. It's like, it goes through ethics and then actually is adopted by the region that provides ECMO. And so it's very complicated. I mean, I think for a lot of us, um, withdrawing from the circuit is oftentimes because of, uh, usually just ongoing complications. And really in most of these complications, it's like 
bleeding versus clotting. It's like, which one is going to kill them first? And it's a constant battle on ECMO. Um, and for most of these patients, it's been, there's clearly a reason to stop or you kind of are forced to stop because they're acutely dying. Uh, actually withdrawing the circuit from them because they're not improving has not really been something uh, that's done mainly because it really does require uh, much more involvement of kind of a panel sort of thing um, so that that's not placed on the individual provider. All right. So um, this particular patient fortunately never ends up needing to go on ECMO, but they are an event for uh, for some time, even up to a week or two. They do get extubated once and reintubated for just work of breathing and some desaturation. Um, but it kind of simmers along for mostly with a, you know, they can't get their peat below eight or so or the oxygen below 50%-ish. Um, and then everyone kind of feels like they just had kind of an indolent course. Um, you know, most patients like this, you'd talk about probably traking them. Um, is that the same thing you're doing with these folks? Are you trying to trach earlier? Are you trying to avoid it? I say trach early. When it's kind of clear that they're, they're not improving anytime soon, anytime quickly. If you think they're going to live, but they're not going to get off the vent in the next seven to 10, seven to 14 days, just trach them because you can wake them up. And they can be more, you know, they can be more comfortable on the ventilator, you can have better neurostatus, easier vent weaning. Like I really do think, especially with this disease process, because of the horror we have all experienced of having these patients be asleep for so long and then realizing they've had a stroke or something catastrophic happened and didn't know. I think for me, that's a reason to treat these patients and kind of get to a better neurological um, status. Um, or earlier in the disease process. I, th I think I agree um, with the caveat that I, like a lot of this, I, I don't think we're getting as much value there as we might in other patients because even after they're traked, they're still not getting off the vet because they still require some PEEP and, you know, higher oxygen. Um, they're, uh, they're not, still not leaving the ICU for reasons of disposition. Um, and the, a lot of them are still requiring sedation anyway. So it's, it's a, kind of a step in the right direction, but it's not like they're coming back on trach mask and then, you know, being discharged the next day. <laughs> no, not at all. But you also know that all these patients are going to go to vent facilities, right? And so it's kind of like, I mean, you can, you can think that you're going to pull the tube, but you're probably not going to be able to pull the tube, you know, once it's been a week. And, you know, these patients get so that's the other thing is like the polyneuropathy you're thinking gosh what is this is this the sedation is it the paralysis is it the disease i mean i've never seen so much deconditioning and debilitation in my icu patients um i don't know if it's similar to what you're seeing oh yeah but like you said i that may just be consistent with how much we're sedating paralyzing and proning them which you know normally we're not we're not doing so much of that. Anymore. Yeah, no, we, for this we reason. practicing medicine from 1985 and now realizing why we don't practice medicine like 1985. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, I mean, what's the disposition situation been for you? Are you, um, are there a lot of facilities that are taking these patients for you and are, do they need to see them start testing negative or something like that? Or They've been really great. We've had, a, we have a couple facilities associated with our hospital and they've really changed and been aggressive about changing their COVID um, requirements to move the patients through the system. Um, I really think they've done a great job. 
They do not have to test negative, mainly because we now know that like, what does a P what does a PCR mean more than, you know, 10 to 20 days into your disease process? Likely nothing um, in terms of actual viral and in, infectious viral shedding. Um, so I think that all, all of that kind of information has actually improved the process of treating these patients because you can move them along much quicker. Um, and we're definitely seeing that. And I think we've, we've done a pretty good job. I haven't had anybody stick around for a super long time because they couldn't get placed, which has been um, super beneficial. Is there ever a point during their inpatient course where you're removing them from isolation? Because you don't think they're infectious anymore. Yes. We What's have your criteria for that? Twenty days. Twenty days 20. after in, after they're positive. Elements. Yep. And okay. regard, yep. And regardless of like clinical course, um, twenty days after, unless aerosolizing generating procedures, then all the same stuff. Everybody is perfectly in, able to and encouraged to wear more you know, aggressive PPE if they want to, but otherwise 20 days. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was going to say that's sort of been our standard. We're seeing my team, we're taking care of a lot of folks um, from the MICU service once they are not COVID anymore. So 20 days out. Um, and yeah, I still wear full aerosol PPE if I bronc somebody or if I'm intubating or extubating somebody or if they're even on high flow, um, even though, but we do take them out of precautions. Uh, Nicole, are you seeing a lot of what I've seen about a half dozen or so, what I would just term kind of post COVID lung, um, these folks who you just can't get them off high flow. They just can't, you just can't get them not to Kipnik. Um, I mean, I had a patient the other day who we were going to downgrade out of the ICU and the nurses are calling me saying, I don't think this patient can leave the ICU. Uh, you know, she's breathing 30 something times a minute. And I go up and see her and I say, how are you feeling? And she goes, fine. And she's sitting there breathing 30 times a minute and she's visibly dyspneic, but she feels fine. And her numbers are all, you know, okay. Uh, and I think that's, is that just what we're going to expect out of these folks? I think so. I mean, like even like my, I have a patient who's on ECMO, but he's on pressure support on the vent. We're trying to wake him up. And he's just, I just tell the nurses and the RTs, I was like, just don't look at him. Just don't, just don't look at it. Like it's terrible to look at, just ignore it. And yeah. it, it feels so wrong to say, but I think it's true. And I think this is why I think it's so important for these patients to have consistent people take care of them that understand the normal intricacies of this disease that yes, their respiratory rate is going to be in the thirties and it's going to look terrible, but mm -hmm. we can't change that. And if we don't move them along in the system, we're actually going to hurt them because we're not going to allow them to get to the rehab that they need. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the key there. It's not that that's normal and maybe not great. It's just that anything we do about it is probably going to make it worse. Exactly. We're just going to keep intervening. And it's like, we just have a, a, I hate it. I am sure there will be long-term consequences. The fallout from this will be outrageous, but we have to keep moving these patients along so that they can get the care they need because they cannot get it in the ICU or in the hospital with us. Yeah. What about non-respiratory presentations? Are you seeing folks who show up with COVID who respiratory-wise look fine, but they have GI problems or hematological problems or the other complications that we've seen? Yeah. I mean, like, it's interesting. The patient came in last night and ended up on VA with cardiomyopathy. Her first two COVID tests were negative. Like, she never really had any respiratory issues. And, you know, now her third test finally pop, pops up positive and 
you know, it's probably COVID induced cardiomyopathy. We've had a couple of patients who have showed up with um, strokes. Um, but the vast majority of mine, I do say, show up from a respiratory standpoint because they're all coming in for ECMO consultation. Um, but yes, I've definitely seen the other things that happen with COVID. Um, the biggest thing is the clotting. I mean, mm. the clotting, it's just outrageous. The PEs and the diffuse vascular clotting, venous and arterial. Um, and it's, it's really shocking. Yeah, we've had, a, I think, a decent collection of patients who um, even like routine post-ops, uh, you know, doing other things, and they all had been tested often a couple times and were negative, and then they ended up coming positive later after their course got complicated. And there was this debate about when did they become positive, they catch it here, they came in with it, whatever. But I, I in particular wonder, you know, maybe their their surgical course and innovation and all that was kind of the, the second hit that unmasked the illness. Otherwise, it would be quite a coincidence that they suddenly got so much worse from their disease after they had their cabbage or whatever. Oh, yeah. Agreed. I mean, I think it's totally like a second hit phenomenon for sure. Um, and I think, and, and Brian remembers me, you know, bitching about this for lack of a better word back in March, like the PCRs are only as good as the PCR, right. And the PCR itself is great, but the sample collection is not right. And the sample preservation is not and I think that we put so much stock in these negative PCRs that don't really mean a whole lot when somebody's symptomatic. Yeah. And I think that especially early on, like you were talking about back in March, I think we were seeing that a lot of, you know, swabbing these folks like we would swab for RSV, uh, not even not even as aggressive as the flu. But, you know, um, but I know back in the midsummer or whatever, I was exposed and had to go get uh swabbed and they definitely were more aggressive about it at that point. So, <laughs> um, yeah. we're seeing, uh, I've seen a couple of cases like Brandon mentioned post-surgical. Um, w you mentioned the aggressive steroids like Dexa arts. What, what are the risks in that, in a post-surgical patient in terms of healing? Is there a risk benefit calculation to make, um, for, you know, steroids hurting your surgical healing versus steroids helping your lungs? Yeah. You know, like I'd have to talk. I mean, I think that in certain situations, like God forbid you needed a sternotomy and then you got it. Um, or you had it when you came in, I would have to ask them in terms of the risk, but I would imagine that they would say that the, the risk of not receiving steroids, um, outweighs the benefit of, you know, wound healing mm. mainly because, we decadron is the only thing that's been proven to make any of this better. Um, and so I think I, I would have a hard time not giving the one thing that's been proven to help um, because of the potential risk of wound infection, knowing that the biggest thing that I can do to decrease the risk of wound infection is control their blood sugar, which is going to be astronomical regardless of whether they get steroids or not because COVID blood sugars are insane. Um, and I, I have not come across a surgeon yet that's been weird about it. Yeah, that's sort of been my experience, too. The few times I've asked, the surgeons have basically said, yeah, do what you feel like you need to do. All right. Anything else you want to hit upon, Brian? So let me ask you one question, just because you've you've been through a lot of this in New York, and now a pr it sounds like a pretty decent volume in Cincinnati and stuff. And we've talked a little bit about practicing 1985 medicine and making up new stuff as we go along, get your crystal ball out real quick. What, what do you think 
if there was one or maybe two things that you think we would take away from what we've learned from treating COVID patients and apply it to just general critical care medicine, you know, how how's this going to change things? For me, it's I'm going to use Echo so much more than I used to because it's so weird to think, why are you talking about Echo when we're talking about a pulmonary disease? And what I realized up in New York was when patients would start looking worse, I would look at the heart and the RV was always struggling. And I think I will go much quicker to grabbing an echo and thinking about the right heart and how can I offload the right heart a lot more than I ever used to. Um, part of that was probably from my fellowship that I did, but a lot of it was this disease. Um, and I think the second thing is that it kind of reinforced kind of my resistance to us doing the same things we've always done because this disease does not follow the rules and it pushes you to do the uncomfortable. And I think I will always be a little bit more willing to push the envelope um, in the future because this disease has kind of shown us that if you're not willing to push the envelope, then it'll just kill your patients. Um, so echo and being more open-minded is probably the two things that I'll bring, I'll take out of this. Nicole, I just have to ask uh, when you are seeing right heart strain like that, what are you, what are you doing about it in these patients? Cause what I found often is that it's, I think it's some combination of all the, the pressure in their chest from all this peep and so on, and maybe PEs and things, but I, often I can't really treat either of those. So. Usually I just do volatrine to try to shunt away from the areas of the microphron by the dead space ventilation. And then um, just utilizing it as a, a reason to get a CT, um, PE, and treat aggressively you know, with heparin and or I've even gone so far to talk to interventional cards and, you know, would we do ECOS catheters in these patients and stuff like that? Because I do think that being more aggressive will, would save a lot of these patients' lives. I just think that it's kind of scary, but I think it's necessary. Have you been trying inotropes at all? Yeah. I mean, but I mean, that's like Tuesday for me. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, yes, sometimes, but I think sometimes that can actually hurt you as well, because then you're, you're, you get, you get a bit tachycardic and then you're not able to fill the LV. We actually had a patient like that. He had not his diffuse PEs and right-sided dysfunction. And then he got super hypercarbic during a procedure. We tried to give dobutamine while we were getting nitric on board and it made him worse because he couldn't, the rate was too fast. He couldn't unload the RV and fill the LV. So I do think it can be beneficial, but I think, it, you know, it has to be in the right patient. I mainly just go to the inhaled prostaglandins um, and start looking for PEs that I can treat. Yeah, we've done a little bit of inhaled nitric oxide, but I, I don't think we have a very clear sense for, you know, who benefits from it. And I definitely don't think it helps hypoxia that much. I mean, we tell you to do it before we do ECMO, but I don't think for me, it's not for hypoxia. For me, the inhaled prostaglandins is definitely just to limp the RV along while you're trying to get rid of the clot burden. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think this has really been been a big help. And I, I, I say that with the awareness that you know, a year from now, a lot of this may have proven to be the wrong things. <laughs> uh, we, we, we briefly talked about COVID, you know, much earlier in the pandemic. And I think probably 
the majority of what we said there is proven to be wrong. But I, you know, I think we should all just kind of embrace that. That's the nature of these novel diseases. And in a way, it's kind of exciting. We don't often get exposed to a sudden outbreak of a new disease like this. Um, I think, I don't know if the same for you, but I think we've all kind of gotten over the excitement part and now it's just kind of a drag. But hopefully by the time uh, this has become old hat, it'll also be irrelevant because we'll have eradicated it. Exactly. I got my vaccine right before I came on with you guys. So here we go. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be relegated to, um, you know, medical student board reviews, just like measles. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's don't be too quick to write off measles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Measles. Late comeback, maybe. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, we'll check back in a couple of weeks.